Welcome to our podcast series, Five Questions, Five Answers, in which we explore recent U.S. trade policies and U.S. trade rules that can affect thousands of companies. We have a goal in mind to help you, the listener, translate the legal into real-world business strategies. My name is Bridget Matisson. I'm the Director of North American Manufacturing here at Aaron Fox Schiff in Washington, D.C., I get the easy part. I get to ask the questions and I get to choose the colleague or the guest I know will have the right answers for you. So in the next few minutes, I will ask five questions that reflect the concerns we've been hearing from business leaders. All who want to understand the rules, but they also need to mitigate their business risk while increasing their bottom line. So let's start. Hi. Welcome to this latest in our series, Five Questions, Five Answers. All of our listeners know that over the last several weeks since we began these podcasts, we've heard from a number of business leaders in the U.S. automotive sector. We've heard from company leaders and we've heard from association leaders. Well, today, folks, we're turning our attention north and we're turning our attention to Canada. And guess who we have? I am delighted today that we have Flavio Volpe. He's the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. His office is in Toronto, Ontario. And for those of you who have not heard of him, which I doubt, he has been named one of the top 50 people influencing Canadian trade policy in the last year. Well, I've asked him to come and join me. Because I wanted to hear from him and his informed view of the North American automotive sector and his perspective. To many of you, he is not a new name. He is a frequent speaker and media guest in Canada, but also here in the United States and in Mexico. I have known Flavio for many, many years, and so I am delighted that he is with us today. He is polished yet frank, and above all, he is extremely well-informed. So, Flavio, I want to turn the microphone over to you first. Tell us about the APMA and what's keeping your members up at night. First of all, thanks for that pretty generous introduction. I'm sure that you got our basket of goods as a thank you for a little bit of propaganda. We represent about 200 original equipment suppliers to new car manufacturers. Our members employ about 100,000 people in Canada and another 90,000 equally split between the USA in 156 factories and in Mexico in 120 factories. I like giving that stat out because it shows how integrated we are in North America and how important market dynamics in Mexico are to our successes in Canada and same for our dynamics in the U.S. for our successes in Mexico and so forth. 85% of the cars manufactured in Canada into which half of our parts go to are exported to the U.S. So the most important thing for us is what does the consumer in the U.S. think? And that's both from a market perspective and what does the government, the federal government and the state governments tell them to think? You know, how do they affect their buying decisions? So because of that, I try to spend a lot of time in Washington, in Lansing, places like Indianapolis, Tennessee, Kentucky. I coach a boys baseball team based in Indiana. Our sponsors are from Mexico and the boys are from Canada. And so I kind of overlap that schedule between auto parts and baseball. And I'm very happy that you have me on. Wow, that is a great intro. And the timing for our conversation today is particularly interesting as well. I'm sure you know this, and most of our listeners will know this, but just in the last few days, just think about the bigger picture. The White House and a lot of state 
capitals and state houses have been issuing a lot of executive orders with a lot of money attached for the automotive sector, particularly the electric vehicle sector. This week is the last week for comments to USTR, U.S. Trade Representative, on the state of the automotive sector and how the USMCA plays into that. The comments are due. And most lately, the U.S. and Canada and Mexico have announced their panels on the first ever USMCA dispute in this one on core parts in the automotive sector. So the timing for this conversation couldn't be any better. So let me start, Flavio, with a few questions on my end. So the big thing here in the U.S. that's drawing a lot of media ink is a transition from the more traditional ICE to EV products, the internal combustion engine to the electric vehicle. I'm keenly interested in your views in this transition. Who and what are the first movers? Is it the battery production? Is it the e-piston, the e-powertrain? What are your views on that? Well, I'll tell you, you started this by what's keeping me up at night. This question's keeping me up at night. The first mover usually has a market answer or it has a technology answer. Well, market and technology has gotten us to about 5% of consumer purchases being EVs or hydrogen vehicles or, you know, zero emission vehicles. Kind of stalled there. It's really about price. It's also about deployment of charging infrastructure or refueling infrastructure. The first mover for the first time in a long time in this industry is all the major governments in the world trying to articulate in their jurisdictions a 50 to 100% market share for zero emission vehicles by the 2030s. And so if you want to sell cars in the US or Canada or the EU or Japan or any of the major consumer markets, you know that you are going to be penalized. Either your consumer is going to be penalized or your company is going to be penalized, depending on the jurisdiction, if you continue along the path of carbon producing vehicles. So when you put the result ahead of the technology, you disrupt the industries in ways that are unpredictable. We use, for example, in Canada, in the auto parts sector that I represent, we ship $35 billion worth of parts from our factories every year from our Canadian factories. About 30% of those parts are in internal combustion engine components, pistons, connecting rods, crankshafts, camshafts, transmission gears. If we go to 100% electric, those parts disappear and they get replaced by electric motors, which are much more simple and less component heavy than engines, as well as e-gears, single gears instead of 10-speed transmissions. The challenge for the Canadian sector is the healthiest, biggest companies are the ones who are in that space. And so if you're going to use a regulatory tool to disrupt the market for a hypothetical result, you have to partner with those biggest companies what the transition is. If a company that makes engines for General Motors is going to be disrupted by your regulation, but your regulations can't force General Motors to buy electric motors from that same company, you have to be ready for what the fallout is. A government sometimes look at policy objectives in a macro sense, but on the micro sense, if you injure Linamar, the second biggest automotive supplier out of Canada, 35th biggest in the world with 10,000 employees in the U.S. to reach an objective that the Chinese are not trying to reach. Not only are you injuring Linamar in the countries where it matters, you are disadvantaging the overall sector that relies on the health of a Linamar or a Magna or a Martin Rea vis-a-vis our real competition, which is in China. 
So I know there's a long answer, but governments have to have a really thoughtful approach because they're the disruptors right now. That brings me to my second question, and it's a great segue because I asked you, what's the trigger of the first mover? And I mentioned battery production. But, you know, before the battery, you need the critical mineral. And I'm fascinated with this. I'm hearing rumblings, and I say that word loosely, about something called the Canada-U.S. critical minerals something, agreement, project whatever. Where are we on that? And I would imagine that substantively, this is going to be great, great news for the North American EV sector. But are we ready? And who's ready? Is Canada ready? You hit the nail on the head with that one. Yes, there's federal coordination for a critical mineral strategy. And it's under this umbrella of energy security. Now we're trusting two countries that have done a lot of good things together, but energy security and oil and gas, we screwed that up on both levels. We're seeing now a shortage because of the conflict in Ukraine and with Russia, but disruption of oil and gas exports to major markets. We got so much here in Canada and so much in the southern U.S. that if we had been coordinated over the last few decades, we'd be having a different conversation now. So that's what's feeding this critical mineral strategy. We're saying 100% of the vehicles have to be electric by 2035. Both countries are saying this. Well, there's nobody making cells in either country. Nobody is refining the critical minerals that turn them into cells that turns them into batteries. The biggest players in the world, let's say 90% of that market, the EV commercially ready technology is Chinese. You know, the last 10% are a mishmash of countries, including but not limited to expertise in Korea, expertise in Germany. So we're not ready in either country. In Canada, we have the critical minerals at a resource volume that is probably top five in the world. U.S., not so much, you know, on lithium, nickel, graphite, cobalt. We're all kind of wrangling over this idea, oh, these Chinese state-owned enterprises are making bids on Canadian mining companies that own lithium, and we should block them. Yeah, maybe we should block them. But what are you going to do if you block them? These are publicly traded companies that get offers, that have a fiduciary obligation to report to their shareholders and put to a vote. And if Canadian federal industry minister triggers the Investment Review Act powers to reject a deal, we can't just moralize our way to the top of the market. You have to find replacement capital. What I'm hoping is, and I heard in our last visit to the capital last week, is that American access to mobile capital, the American long-term requirement for energy security, is a very complementary attribute to Canada's resources and lack of ability to marshal the money to extract, refine, and turn into cells. We can be each other's best partner on this. Neither one of us has the complete chain. And if there is no American capital interest, then in the end, the only other player really is the Chinese, and these are free markets. Canada's not a centrally planned economy. So we, we can't outright reject the Chinese. And then the Americans, where are you going to get your critical minerals in a cost-effective way? We do so many of these things well together. This is absolutely is the critical fail point, potentially, or absolute supercharger for this discussion. You know, on the role of government in any major manufacturing sector, but particularly in this sector, you know that Washington and state capitals are injecting a lot of money for all the right reasons and for all the right objectives, and we don't have to go through them. What about Ottawa? Where's Toronto, Quebec City? Where's Victoria on funding for your members? And is it direct funding? Is it through trade policy or regulation? You know, we make a lot in this country of Buy America policies and then even from a federal or a state level. And, you know, people deploy people like me to go and fight that out loud, especially in some of the American capitals of commerce and government. And I do. But, you know, academically, intellectually, I have great sympathy for the idea that if we're going to marshal public resources for purchases that shift the dial, shouldn't they be local? 
Now, of course, we all have our WTO obligations and we have our Kuzma USMCA obligations. So I never blame anybody for trying to push the limit. The limit isn't, at least in practice, isn't the strict language of the agreement. The limit is where will your partner challenge you? And Canada hasn't done a great job of challenging, in my opinion, that other than some of the rhetorical challenges. On this side, we always say, well, if they're going to say buy American, why don't we buy Canadian? But rightly, what Ottawa and Toronto especially are saying, maybe not in Quebec City, is first of all, we're one-tenth the size. So we get into this tit for tat. I mean, we're going to get trampled before we get out of the gate. Number two, why don't we understand and sympathize with that sentiment and then concede that we can't compete treasury to treasury, but start to do things that are complementary and that are important. If China's the biggest threat and Russia is a contemporary threat, what are we doing as Canadian lawmakers in the provincial capitals and the national capital to help offset that? Where are we on our defense spending? Where are we in hustling the floor of the United Nations? Where are we on harmonizing climate objectives, but also the values that American lawmakers are using to create a distinction between Chinese labor markets and American labor markets? How do we help Americans even the playing field with China and to relieve some of the pressure of, you know, no one is saying, hey, by the way, Canada, when are you going to send your fighter jets in to help secure a no-fly zone in the Ukraine? They're saying NATO, but they really mean Washington. And so what are we doing to help there? And so if we can show on the ledger that we understand where America's interests lie and to show that we are ready to invest or we are already investing without moralizing on whose initiatives they are and we're a sovereign state, then we can do a lot more when we go there and say, hey, by the way, you have trade obligations. We make things together. American investment investment in Canadian industry is so heavy that if you punish Canadian products, you punish American companies. Those messages start to get accepted and digested differently than people like me showing up just when we're under threat and saying, no, 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 we'll take you an international trade court. Increasingly, both sides of the house, I think, have been showing Canadians that the answer to, oh, you're going to do a trade challenge? Go ahead. It's different than the 90s or the 80s or the 70s. It's gone. And uh, I think more of us here, especially lawmakers here, have to understand that we do have global obligations. And as much as we can be aligned with Washington, it's going to serve us better in the long term. Which brings me, Flavio, to one of my favorite questions. And I think it's my last question. I promised my listeners that I will only ask five questions, given my gratefulness to the time that people spend on these podcasts. Brings me to my last question. But it's a loaded one, Flavio. Oh, boy. Given everything you have just said about, and I love the fact that you have brought every one of these questions into the broader global perspective of competitive challenges and competitive opportunities. Let's talk for just a few minutes on the Kuzma, the USMCA. And here's my very simple question. Given the global environment, given the transition of the industry, is the USMCA Kuzma, is it a competitive advantage for your members, your members who operate in Canada, your members who have plants in the United States, or U.S. multinationals in Canada operating in Canada? Do you know, it only works if the automaker, so in the auto space, we have an auto set of automotive rules inside that agreement. Those automotive rules are an upgrade from a supplier perspective from NAFTA in that it requires automakers to buy more from suppliers and in strategically important subcomponent classes, a lot of the EV stuff, engines, batteries, etc., but also in things that were very important to the government in Washington that were negotiating the new deal, like buying steel locally. We think as a supplier, representing supplier, I think it's a great new set of rules and a great agreement. The world was shifting. It didn't shift after we did that agreement. I think that amongst all the other legacies of the last administration, at least one I think will be lasting, which is the 25-year arc of globalization 
of industry, at least from the developing countries perspective, peaked. And I think increasingly we're going to look at regional alignments and that USMCA from Washington out with partnerships in Ottawa and Washington, if it's done right, it creates a bit of a fortress North America. It eliminates the naivete we had as an exporting nation here that, oh, well, we need bigger markets. So, you know, as a country of 37 million people here in Canada, we need to export all our goods and we'll trade access to our market to countries that want to do the same. Well, we did that with low cost countries. We did that with countries with different value sets on a bunch of the regulatory issues that cost money, labor, climate, whatever. The USMCA draws Canada closer to the U.S.'s lot. And the success of the U.S. in its competition writ large with China is going to depend in part on its ability to marshal all the resources, no pun intended, in Canada and Mexico. That's, you know, another 120 million people, but it's also all the richness of two of the G20 economies of the world who understand, if they understand, that doesn't matter what happens. We are never going to live in an environment where there isn't the Atlantic Ocean on one side and the Pacific Ocean on the other side. And that shipping goods across across the world eats margins. Collaborating with people as much as we do right now on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever is great. Nothing beats a face-to-face. And sending goods on roads and on rail is more secure than sending them by air or by ship. So in as much as Washington doesn't change its mind on interpretations, like the current issue we have on USMCA core parts rules that's going to end up at a panel. In as much as Washington sticks to the USMCA, in as much as Canadians elect lawmakers that understand that you can be a little diffident with your bigger brother, but remembering that it's all family and that our lot is best put with those who share the same house The USMCA for me is going to be the first chapter in that 25-year arc of regionalization of economies that's going to dictate the US-China dynamic. And the TPP will have been the last chapter in globalization. Now, you can have me back on in 25 years and see if I'm right, but it sure feels like that. 25 years, I want to be in Montana fly fishing for that salmon. Our time is up. Here's the part where I have to thank some folks. I don't have to. I want to thank them. I want to first thank our listeners. I'm told that our podcasts have gained quite a long list of regular listeners who tune in. And to this crowd, my humble thank you. I'm also told that at every podcast, we get a bunch of new listeners. I hope for you that you will stay tuned for a series of podcasts we're going to do. By the way, the next two that we have planned in the hopper, stay tuned. One is going to be on U.S. export sanctions, talk about Russia and Ukraine. And two, the second one is going to be from one of my colleagues who's going to be talking about cross-border plant production and U.S. trade policy, U.S. trade rules when you have one plant on one side of the border and another on the other. And here also I get to thank Flavio. I hope, Flavio, that you're in the midst of planning your next annual conference. I go to every one of them. I hope that you are thinking about how to talk about these issues you just did during that conference. I think they're fascinating. And I know a lot of people would like to speak to you. How do people reach you? What's your website? So we're at apma.ca. You can reach me at f volpe at apma.ca first initial and last name so kind of you to mention the annual conference we turned that conference about five years ago from hey yeah this is a purchasing conference or a technology demonstration conference to actually you know what if we've got 500 people that matter from around the industry why don't we bring insight 
from people that make decisions that have nothing to do with cup holders and doors and wheels that affect the way that we live and we trade. And you're being humble, but we've had you speak a couple of times. And during the USMCA negotiations, the feedback from everybody on Bridger was, wow, she scared the hell out of us because you brought candor and you told everybody what everybody's talking about in Washington. And you know what? It's different than what we were talking about in the car towns in Canada. So love to see your listeners there, but also anybody who thinks they want to talk to 500 Canadian executives in automotive or Canadian lawmakers. Our conference will be in September of this year in Toronto. And so just reach out to me and make a quick, compelling argument. I'm more than happy to add people to that roster. I'm sure you will add my name as usual. It's difficult when legal and the regulatory environment in any country are known factors. It's a challenge when these same rules change. Sometimes they seem to change every six months. But you know, on the flip side, it's exciting as heck when you listen about these technologies that bring us new products and new choices from fleets to last mile vehicles to off-road to the cup holder. I mean, it's such an exciting time. So for all these reasons, these podcasts anyways, we try to design them to help companies understand what is happening and try to make sense of them. And for these reasons, I know, Flavio, you have played a role. So thank you to you. Thank you to our listeners and stay tuned, everyone. Thank you. Not bad for a baseball coach. Eh?